Hi, I'm Lisa Morton, founder of Roland Dransfield PR. Welcome to We Built This City. With this podcast, I wanted to shine a light on the people who have put the heart into modern Manchester. You can build a city with bricks and mortar, but it's the people that make Manchester great. Quite a lot of my entire career has been hearing people say that I can't do something or I shouldn't do something and, and me saying, well, that's just <laughs> that's just going to make me want to prove you wrong. You'll perhaps know Mary Ellen as the award-winning chef of the creameries in Chalton or the lauded Ormbury in Presswich. She's the award-winning chef that set up Eat Well Manchester to feed vulnerable people across the city region in the pandemic. She's also the award-winning chef that trained with Heston Blumenthal and she's also the chef that performed the sellout Alice in Wonderland themed high tea experience for the Manchester International Festival. I've been dying to speak to Mary Ellen over the past year, but given the fact that she's fed 31,000 people who needed food over the pandemic, I thought I should give us some space. So here we are today. What does it take to become an award-winning chef? And how does one woman create a legacy for an industry that is years and years old in a city where it's relatively new? I caught up with her online to find out. Thank you for joining me on We Built the City, Mary Ellen. Thank you. So, your Twitter handle describes you as furious like horse and busy like mother. Mm-hmm. I get the mother bit. Why a horse is furious and what makes you furious? Not very much, actually. I don't, I don't get angry very often. Um, the furious like horse is, it comes from my favourite TripAdvisor review for Ormbury at the time which is the restaurant I had in Presswich some years back. And it was a TripAdvisor review written by a person who themselves seemed really furious. I thought at first, when I first saw it, that one of my friends had done it as a joke because it was just completely mad. They were they were really angry at the portion sizes being too small and they were talking about how the portion size must be small because the room's small and we make the portion sizes to fit the rooms. And it was talking about how I was... I looked furious like a horse with my nostrils flaring and that I was making the tall, clumsy gentleman chef so nervous that he was dropping pans. That was my husband at the time and he definitely wasn't scared of me. Um, <laughs> we were just like in a busy service, but no one was angry. It was really funny. And so furious like a horse just really struck a chord with me. I, I liked it. And then busy like a mother, obviously there's a there's a couple of syllables missing at the end there. <laughs> right, yeah. <laughs> but that that's just me all the time. Well, I love Furious Like Horse, and I was absolutely dying to know the answer, and it's such a great answer. So you're born and bred Mancunian, born in Bury, and you've worked across the globe, including Missouri. But why has Manchester been the place that you've found your roots in and you've stayed in? I think just purely because it's my home. Well, not just that, it's my home and I really love it. And I, well, I grew up in Bury, I grew up in a little villagey suburb area, north, just north of Bury, sort of towards Ramsbottom Way. And so Manchester itself to me was like, that was the escape. Like when I was old enough to kind of go into town with my friends and old enough to start getting into music and going to Piccadilly Records and buying sort of, you know, seven inches I'd read about in Enemy, wearing my Doc Martens, wearing the Indie Kid uniform, just kind of like <laughs> doing all the stuff that Indie Kids did in the early 90s. Um, so yeah, it was just a really exciting place. Loved Affleck's Palace. And then when I was a little bit older, starting to go to gigs and stuff and my sort of social circle was pretty much based around musicians and bands so um gigs and venues are where we did most of our socializing anyway so th- there's that there's the fact that my kind of social life was here I definitely wanted to go away and travel and I lived away from Manchester for a, 
about 10 years between the ages of about sort of 20 and 30 and I loved that I loved traveling but I always felt like I was missing out not being at home and it was it was really wonderful coming back and I've you know I'm I still love that I live here and I love I live next door to one of my oldest and best friends you know my other sort of closest friends are even you know whether we live north or south Manchester everyone's within like a 20-30 minute journey so that's really important to me. I think those childhood friends that you've had, I mean, I've still friends with my very first best friend from school and we don't see each other that often, but she's there at the end of the phone if I need her. And I think those early relationships are really important, aren't they? They are really special. I think I read something that you make more memories between the ages of 15 and 19, or maybe it's 15 and 25, I'm, uh, I'm misquoting, but that, that you make more memories at that time of your life than you do at any other time. And so I think those, you know, it's like the music that you get into and the books that you read and the ideas and the philosophies that you discover at that time really do have a lasting impact. But I think equally the friendships that you form. I mean, Mm -hmm. the the majority of my close friends now I've met between those ages and they definitely feel like family. You gave up a degree in languages, didn't you, to pursue a career in food and to be a chef, which must have taken lots of bravery. What was the, the point at which you decided that you weren't destined to be a translator or whatever and you wanted to be a chef? Well, I don't, I don't know if it was bravery or uh, just stupidity, but I was actually in the bath. It was a real eureka moment. I was in the bath. I was in my second year at uni. I'd failed the first year and then resat and scraped through into my second year, but I was just absolutely hating it. I mean, I just, I found it an absolute grind and wasn't enjoying it. Did love cooking. And it was just, it was, I guess it was just a series of happy coincidences. I was working at the roadhouse at the time. And I overheard Kate Mountain, who is my boss, um, talking to her business partner about how they needed to do some food so they could keep hold of their license because their license was dependent on there being a food offering. And I just volunteered to do it, to do some bar food and then to cook for the touring bands. The year before that, I'd spent the best part of a year in the south of France and um, I was just sort of volunteering there. And I'd gone there pretty much not really liking any vegetables and just had this completely transformative (laughs) experience where I ate broccoli that tasted amazing probably for the first time in my life and tomatoes that tasted just so wonderful and I was uh, living with this really a really keen cook I mean my whole family are massively into food I was just personally a very awkward fussy eater that didn't really like anything apart from chips and bread and crisps and things so that was a real kind of eye-opener and and kind of started me really enjoying cooking and like trying different foods and then this you know this thing happened at the roadhouse where they needed someone to cook I just volunteered with no experience at all it really was a spur of the moment thing I mean it was definitely influenced by the fact that I was totally in the shit with my coursework and hadn't done anything towards it and it was due in the next day there was definitely an element of panic and how on earth do I get out of this and I was like I know I'll just leave and then I won't have to do it and then I can do something different instead um that's how much thought went into it obviously my parents were completely (laughs) delighted with me um I was gonna ask you about that (laughs) yeah I mean they they correctly spotted that I hadn't really thought it through. Um, although I was, I was actually, I felt really certain that it was the right thing to do. So it was like, I had, I had a kind of a sense that this was the right way for me to go and the right path. It just probably wasn't immediately apparent to anybody else in the world that that was a wise thing to do. At the time, it felt like a real kind of revelation. It's like, oh, this is what I should do with my life. 
and you know maybe it was it's it's turned out okay but because I didn't really know what I was doing I just went to Waterstones on Deansgate and I bought a copy of the Good Food Guide and I read it cover to cover in like a day and then I picked about 10 places that I thought sounded really great and I wrote to them all and said please can I be a chef and most of them rightfully ignored me and then a few got back to me and two of them that did respond were Shara Bay country house hotel up in Oswater in the lakes which is where I ended up going and the other person that replied was Heston Heston Blumenthal from the Mm. fat duck and he was really positive he just sort of said he said he rang me a couple of days later after getting the letter and he sort of said you know if you're in the area if you have a passing come in for lunch and we'll have a chat so I obviously immediately booked him for lunch like the next week and drove there and back in a day with a friend he was very lovely and he came and chatted to me Uh, And he just said they don't take on people with no experience. So to go away and get some cooking experience. And then um, Shara Bay, the hotel that had also replied, offered me a position in housekeeping at first. I think I asked them probably twice a day when I was going to be going into the kitchen. So um, I ground them down after a few months and they let me in the kitchen there. I was the first woman ever in the the, the main kitchen there. They, They properly didn't know what to do with me. They couldn't speak to me. Like the head chefs had been there about 30 years. They couldn't They mm. couldn't look me in the eye and they couldn't speak to me directly for like for ages and ages. They just didn't know what to do. And just going back to then to Heston for a minute, that takes guts, doesn't it? And that's making things happen. Not many people will actually go to those lengths to actually write to someone like him and then get an audience with him where in actual fact... You know, if you do take the time to do it and make the effort, you can create those opportunities. Like I say, it's not, it wasn't planned particularly well. I didn't, I didn't go Mm. through the kind of the usual process of thinking about doing a thing, working out whether or not a thing is a good idea. I just did it. And so I didn't really think about, I knew it was hugely exciting that he'd responded and I knew it was really, I was really lucky to be able to speak to him. I think he was a bit surprised to see me there the next week. I think he was thinking maybe at some point in the next (laughs) year or so, if I was ever in the South of England. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I probably look like an absolute lunatic, Um, but (laughs) probably sounded like a lunatic in the letter. So, hey, can I have a job, please? Thanks. (laughs) That is something that he appreciated. And that's something that I know that from when I worked with him, that's something that a sort of echo of how he's been throughout his life. Like he he was a debt collector before he was a chef and he just decided I'm going to be a chef now and have a restaurant. He wasn't the sort of person that would be like, oh, you're not really doing this the proper way. And, you know, you should go through the proper channels. I think he sort of, I think he liked the fact that I'd just approached him in that way. He probably saw himself in you as well, didn't he, suppose, you know, that made that rash decision that, or passionate decision to change yeah. a, a career path. I think so, yeah. I think it was that that probably did me a favour there. And then you went back, so you didn't get the, the position first time round, but then you did go back to work for him, what, a few, was it a few years later? Yeah, so I went, I was, um, went up to Shara Bay and then after a few months of housekeeping and changing beds, they finally allowed me into the kitchen and, I mean, it was total baptism of fire I'd never ever been so tired mm. in my entire life and actually looking back that's one of the easiest cooking jobs I've ever had so um it was um but at the time I was just like oh my god this is so hard um but it was amazing I mean it was a brilliant grounding in sort of classic French and British cookery 
it, it had a Michelin star at the time, so it was really it was good quality. The produce was amazing. Loads of Lake Districts produce, really good local suppliers, and it was a gorgeous place to live. So yeah, that was, mm. that was a really amazing experience. I was there about a year and a half sort of learning how to be a chef basically and then I went out to and lived in the the states for almost a year after that I kind of followed my then boyfriends out there and we spent almost a year in a very odd place in Missouri and then when we were coming back from the states we um I think I just got in touch with them again and said I'm coming back do you have anything and they did and so I ended up spending four years there I kind of I remember thinking at the time I was like god I thought I thought my first cooking job was hard and the fat duck was like it was 90 plus hours a week every single week and sometimes six seven days a week and not just not just your five days not just your five 18 hour days or whatever it is and it was insanely hard work and it was really 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 high pressure but I absolutely loved it I loved I loved being expected to perform at that level and and having to and 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 also just proving people wrong because, I mean, mm. I think definitely quite a lot of my entire career has been hearing people say that I can't do something or I shouldn't do something and, and me saying, well, well, that's just, <laughs> that's just going to make me want to prove you wrong. Um, I had a friend tell me last summer, I said I was going to build myself a patio and he said, I don't think you can do that. So I built this patio and it was the worst week of my entire life and I was crying and bleeding most of the time. But I was just like, you can't tell me I can't do something. Like if I, if somebody wants me to do something, they just need yeah. to suggest I can't do it. Um, the first couple of months I was there, I was just, I just didn't feel good enough. I felt, and you know, there's that imposter syndrome that you get that people can have at various sorts of points. But I was genuinely out of my depth. Like I didn't know, I hadn't ever handled foie gras and that was something that was suddenly on my prep list. I hadn't ever deboned a pig's head, which was, you know, the first time I was shown how to do that, my knees went and I nearly fainted and like had to oh, grip onto the bench. It was just like, it was so gross. Oh, uh, but then I got used to it and it was fine. But it was, it, it was all so new and it was a totally different way of working as well. It was very kind of precise and scientific. And also because it was, I mean, it was two stars when I started and then it went up to three Michelin stars. I would say definitely in despite of me, not, um, not, because of anything I contributed but um, the, it was just so everything was so pristine and perfect and that was a real real big like adjustment for me and the sort of sciencey side which I absolutely loved and found fascinating and that was one of the brilliant things about working for Heston was like he would ask a question and he was just so passionate about teaching people he'd like grab a bit of blue roll out of the blue roll dispenser and get his sharpie out and start drawing diagrams about how collagen behaves at different temperatures and why we cook this at 60 degrees for 48 hours and and so I, I just found that absolutely like enthralling mm. absolutely loved it I mean I did come up against quite some resistance there and there'd been the kind of the sort of indirect resistance that was there at Sharrow Bay was a bit different in the States because, like, the kitchen team, were they were all at least 50% women. But coming back to the fat duck, I, o- I overheard a couple of the more senior chefs saying, well, they had a bet on, basically. The head chef and the pastry sous chef had a bet that they'd... It was October, and they had a bet that they'd have me out of there by Christmas, which obviously wow. just meant I was like, I'm going nowhere. 
Yeah, even if I'm even if, patio. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> even if I'm really rubbish, I'm going to hold on to this job somehow. Um, yes. But it was so that was quite. I mean, I definitely barely slept or ate for the first few months I was there. I was I was just completely running on adrenaline. I mean, and I was only twenty three, twenty four, something like that. So I I could get away with not eating or sleeping for months at a time. Um, there was some other fairly serious, horrible misogyny as well going on. Which, when I look back on now, I think, God, that was actually quite dark. But at the time, it was just kind of one of those things that you had to wade through in order to be able to stay in the job that you wanted. I've never been a chef. You know, I've been a waitress since I was 15 and, and worked in bars. And I have found the level of misogyny in the kitchen and the autocracy of the head chef and the whole culture in the kitchen was horrendous. And like you say, you put up with it because you just thought you were doing the hard yards, you had to get through that. It's, you know, at that level. And I'm interested to know, at the Sharrow Bay, was the establishment okay with you changing beds as a woman? They didn't have an issue with that. It's just when you got into the kitchen, they had a problem. Oh, yeah, because the entire housekeeping team was women. There were no male housekeepers and there were no Mm. female chefs. So everyone was in their rightful place Mm. until I upset things. And how much has that changed now? The last 15 years of my sort of career as a chef, I've been either in a head chef position or more senior. But I've had more influence over that culture than at any other point um, previous. I wouldn't say that I'm never autocratic or completely didactic or completely clear or feel like there needs to be really clear sort of structure and order in the kitchen. But there's, there's that and then there's physically and verbally abusing people. And there's not respecting people. And, you know, there's, there's, they're two completely different things. So some elements of kitchen culture are important for running a service and for getting through a really busy day and for making sure that everyone knows what they're doing and can stay focused on what they're doing so you, you can do what you need to do. But all of that stuff can be done with respect and it can be done without oppressive tactics and, and all that kind of thing. So that's the change that obviously I've, tried to well have instigated in the kitchens that I've run um kitchens weren't just sexist though they weren't just misogynistic I mean a lot of the kitchens I worked in were really horribly racist as well it was you know there was a lot of white male dominant culture and which I think all is is definitely changing massively has been I mean and I see now so many younger female chefs take cooking up as a career the worry is the bit where it gets really difficult is if you ever have children because nurseries don't open in the evening or at weekends and the hours are they're just generally not very friendly to family life so that's always been a real struggle I've been really lucky to have amazing family support which has obviously been uh, not there in the last year because we've all had to kind of be separate from each other but it, Really, I mean, I've I was only ever able to go back to work because my auntie took care of my kids. I I've had to work evenings and weekends. I've you know school runs have been a nightmare. So without without somebody in my life who was there to pick all of that stuff up for me, I would have had to stop cooking. So I'm I'm just incredibly lucky that that's there. I don't know what the industry does or can do really to make that change because not everybody has an auntie who's retired and lives locally and is happy to do you know so much mm. childcare because I couldn't have I couldn't have afforded to pay for childcare either even if there was childcare available at the times I needed it it wouldn't have been an option 
So that's something I think about, really. I see loads of young women starting to cook. I'm yeah. not sure how we make it possible for women to stay in the industry long enough to make it into more senior mm. positions. Yeah, I can really see that. So when you started Ombre in Presswich, you didn't have children at that point? I did. I had a 15-month-old son. Oh, my gosh, right. Yeah, I started Ombre with my then husband. So we kind of, and we were both chefs, and we both owned the business. So we kind of tag-teamed between the restaurant and the the kids it changed a bit when my second son was born because he was unfortunately quite poorly as a baby so I ended up not working for quite a long time um that's a lie actually I was back I was back doing emails a couple of hours after he was born but um he's (laughs) but in terms of physically being at work and cooking like I couldn't do that which was I drove me absolutely mad of course because of the health issues he had he couldn't ever go to nursery so my auntie looking after him and my older son was again the only reason I was able to go back to work we made it work because there was at the time there was two of us at home when you know when the kids were really little and because we did effectively the same job we both owned the restaurant and was and ran ran it from a head chef position so we were completely interchangeable so there was always one of us at work one of us at home it's very difficult. I had the same situation with mine. I've got 21 months between my two. I mean, I didn't have a maternity leave with my daughter. I was back in the office two weeks later because somebody had decided to uh, try and rip the, the business apart while I was um, on the delivery bed. But um, yeah, there were the dark days, aren't they? And you then you feel that sense of guilt that you're not being a, a mum and you're not being um, a good boss or whatever. But lockdown for me, I got my maternity leave 21 years later. Oh, <laughs> Finally. Wow. that's great. <laughs> I had to wait a long time, but it was much better because they could cook and we could all drink wine together rather than That's nice. <laughs> feeding them. It was really nice, actually. It was a long time coming. Yeah. With Ombre then, and I am gutted because I never made it and it was absolutely oh. top of my list. And it was one of Greater Manchester's most lauded restaurants. I mean, everybody talked about it. It was an overnight success, wasn't it? And you had such a great, so many accolades and, and you won so many awards. How much of an achievement did that feel to you? It was totally like an absolute joy and I absolutely loved it but I think and I I do this all the time and I sound like a bit of a stuck record on this but the parallels between having a child and having a restaurant are just like Mm. there are just so many the uh the exhaustion the relentlessness (laughs) the fact that your business just doesn't stop existing ever it's 24 7 doesn't matter where you are in the world or what's going on in your life like the business is still a thing that needs your energy and your time and it felt like, it felt to me, I loved it so much and I put so much into it and it felt like another child. And I think it did, it mm. did as well as it did just because of how loved it was. And it wasn't just me. I mean, Lawrence loved it too, my ex-husband and, and Kate Mountain, who was our business partner, loved it and the staff loved it. And it was like a loved and cherished thing. Mm. I mean, it was insanely hard work and I can't quite believe we did that with small children. But it was brilliant. And I think... I think I couldn't do it again. I mean, I, you know, I've opened the creameries and that's my own business and it's hard work and it's lots of hours. But I think trying to cook at that level and maintain that level is, you know, ultimately it's, it's exhausting. So it has to come to an end at some point. It created a lot of opportunities. I mean, it was it was yeah. um, best restaurants of the year, wasn't it? And you were named Chef of the Year and then Cheshire Life and Lancashire Life Chef of the Year. And then yeah. a Great British Menu, a stint on that. When we opened Ombre, there was really like, there was very little else going on in Manchester. I mean, the food and drink scene these days is absolutely unrecognisable. It's so kind of vibrant and fast moving and so good. Like the quality is just 
that was a time when it was it was hard to think of places to take people when they came from out of town, like really hard. And now it's the total opposite. It's like there's there's, there's so much really brilliant innovative stuff which I think is you know that's a really Mancunian thing it's just it's food has been the like last sort of creative industry to to really take off here I think I think like obviously music and design and and all sorts of other industries have got a a really kind of long and lauded history in Manchester but I don't know what it is we've just been quite slow to really really take off and really be this like amazing creative dynamic vibrant cool thing that's got loads of energy and loads of life to it and is doing really interesting stuff i'm sure there's a sociologist historian somewhere who knows why these things happen when they happen but it's just i'm just so glad it has happened it's so it feels like such an exciting place to eat and drink these days so yeah you're saying that probably food and the hospitality sector was one of the last creative sectors to really um, burst through in Manchester and yet it's become probably in the last 10 to 15 years known as the city of restaurants it's got an incredible offer of choice and food from all around the world and I'm really interested in you relating food as part of culture because in food as an art form because I know that that's something that was recognized when Manchester International Festival commissioned you for a big piece around Alice in Wonderland I think in 2015 gutted also that I didn't manage to get a ticket because he sold out in seconds so just can you remind me what I missed out on initially I mean we didn't quite know where we were going to get to with it initially it was just supposed to be like a big banquet and then we thought we'd maybe connect it up with one of the events that was happening during the festival the wonder.land thing really captured my imagination and then through a sort of series of other conversations the festival were having with Manchester Museum they offered us the top floor of the museum and access to their amazing collection so we ended up having their dodo in as part of the event and stuff but basically it was like a perambulatory food event and it was a bit like it started off like the Mad Hatter's tea party but it was a bit more like a psychedelic tea party and then it moved into a room where there was the caterpillar. And then we had a room which was the white rabbit. We had the white rabbit take everybody from the entrance of the museum up to the top rooms, actually, where the, the thing was happening. And then a couple of rooms later, we ate the white rabbit and a rabbit pie. And then the final room was the Queen of Hearts. There was like a tea party and then like a mushroom broth thing and then like a kind of cottage pie type thing. And then a dessert. So it was like a, it's like a four-course meal. It was so incredible to do. I mean, there were costumes and lights and there was set dressing. And I had two producers working on the show with me. And it just it just felt so amazing to be part of an arts festival, firstly. And to, and to really be able to work with food as part of a, a much bigger thing. Part of what I love about restaurants is probably the fact that it's not just food on a plate. It's what the plates are and it's what the room looks like and it's what the music is and... There's a lot of scene setting that goes on that I think is definitely one of the bits I I loved the most about doing the Alice in Wonderland, Mm. uh, the high tea party. Yeah, it was loads of fun. Oh, I want to cry now you've just said that to me again because I was absolutely devastated to have missed out at that the time and it's, I just feel actually feel worse. But I have been to the Creameries, I'm glad to say, and I meet my friend and mentor Chris Brindley. 
Uh, and we go meet there and have some sourdough and a few oysters and stuff, which is wonderful. So I can't wait to come back. And it feels like it's a lovely atmosphere. It feels like a really kind of values based business. So what's your passion behind the creameries? A big thing for me in the last few years has been since I spent about a year working for the Real Junk Food Project. So food waste, which I was loosely aware of as a bad thing. I mean, I knew it was bad and I knew it shouldn't happen. And I kind of did have always gone out of my way to avoid it where possible. But really, it was through working with the Real Junk Food Project, I became aware of the scale of um, how much food we're wasting and how it's happening and the fact that our supermarket delivery services are chucking away tons and tons of good food and to toiletries and things because it's cheaper to incinerate it than to put it back on on shelves and there's all of these like sort of quite shocking discoveries that just meant that by the time I came to open the creameries I was just kind of determined because of stuff I'd learned through working for real junk food just more determined that we weren't going to waste anything so that's a huge part of what we do is and a lot of what goes into the menu is how when we get an ingredient how do we use everything so on a cauliflower for example we might roast florets to go on a dish slice thinly and pickle the stalk the leaves we might roast and turn into a powder like a toasted cauliflower powder and so we're kind of looking at ingredients in a slightly different way and instead of just thinking what's nice to make with this it's what's nice to make with this and how do we make sure that we're not throwing any of it away so and it's it's you know it means that we it's kind of leads to a lot of fermenting and pickling and it's it's quite labor intensive but it it does also mean that we've constantly got this larder of like interesting flavors and ingredients that we can use as garnishes or even sort of one of the the snacks that we do we serve with bread and butter, like bread and the homemade butter at the start of the meal. We serve a plate of pickles. So, yeah, I think it's, it's definitely the sustainability element. But also, the, there's other things, you know, there's one into work in a kitchen where people aren't expected to work 60, 70 hours a week. You know, there's one into try as much as possible to stick to something below a 45 hour week which is quite I mean it probably sounds a lot to most people but in hospitality terms it's hard to achieve but that's important as well you know that we're taking care of staff I think our working relationships are dead important as well I mean there's always like quite a nice sort of team thing going on in restaurants I think you know we spend so much time together more time probably than we do with anybody else so trying to work in a way where we're still trying to do things in an excellent way and there's still structure and there's still all that stuff, but people are feel comfortable and valued and all the other things that you wouldn't normally associate with working in a restaurant. Do you find that because you've set those values within the business that you tend to attract people who share the same kind of purpose or outlook that, that you do? Yeah, completely. I mean, the team that we have is full of excellent people who are really talented and skilled and good at their jobs. We had a strict no dickheads policy when we were first um, recruiting, (laughs) Um, which is something I try to apply broadly to my life with with (laughs) greater and lesser success. That definitely meant that at the start, you know, we had a team of really nice people, really sound people. And also, as we changed the format, because when we first started the creamers, we were very much, it was like a kind of bakery, drop in for a coffee, bring the kids kind of place. 
and you still can bring your children, but you might not want to spend 45 quid on a dinner for them um, <laughs> that they might not eat all of. So there's, um, it's kind of, we've gone from being that kind of coffee shop, bakery vibe to towards the end of 2019. I'd kind of gone off and done various other bits for a bit. And then I kind of came back to properly head up the kitchen as the kind of day-to-day head chef. And so we sort of, we decided to just trim everything away and just do restaurant this was about 18 months into being open and we sort of settled on, we think we should focus on the restaurant thing. But it meant we needed a smaller team. And actually, really fortunately, there was just like a, a number of people who left, moved away to do to live in other cities, do other things. And so we were left with a very small team, but all of whom are, are like um, just really committed and really committed to the restaurant, to kind of service and the wine and the food and the menus and, and the, the sort of, I guess, the core values of the, of the business, you would say. Um, not that we've ever written that down. And but also really encouraging and kind and nice and you know just kind of it's 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 a place that I enjoy being. It doesn't ever feel like a bind. Really special when you can it get is. that vibe in the place that you spend yeah. all your time in. And I suppose for you having no dickheads painted on the walls, not going to go down too well in the creamery. So I get the fact that <laughs> <laughs> you just talk about it. <laughs> it's an unspoken policy, yeah. Although I do have a laminated sign that says strictly no dickheads that a friend of mine made for, we were at a festival and we were staying at a cottage and loads of random people kept coming back. So she put a strictly no dickheads sign up outside and it worked. It does. And also, but I mean, it's our—it's one of our values, as you know, and and it's um, one that always raises a smile. But it's just so brutally honest, and you can also check whether or not you're being one yourself. And I think that's probably as important as as whittling the other ones out. You've obviously got everything up and running, and it was the way you wanted it. You had the right kind of model, and then we got the pandemic hit, and you like so many other amazing people in the hospitality sector were just kind of decimated overnight you then went on to do something incredible so just talk to me about that and what the light bulb moment for you and you were obviously looking at the whole business falling around your ears that you still got up and then went to help other people yeah so I think the creameries and probably the first restaurant in my entire lifetime of running a restaurant was starting to do quite well financially it was uh, it was you know it restaurants are are hard businesses to to make work even let alone make a profit out of so it was like woo, we've done it we've nailed it this works and then uh, we closed so um that was disappointing obviously but really even before we'd closed so my eldest sister is a doctor and we'd just been having chats in the run-up like as the pandemic was worsening and as uh, cases were rising in the UK and we we knew a lockdown was looming or, or certainly had a really good idea that it was and so she was involved in she, she works in in Sheffield but she was involved in the city's kind of Covid preparations and stuff and so she'd had a particularly grim series of meetings I think she just she sort of had then quite a, a really clear sense of what was coming so we were talking about that and she was talking about how people working in the NHS were going to be working shifts that went on for days and not hours and were just you know going to be exhausted and it was going to be really hard and really horrible and I so I was just sort of like oh god what you know what can we do to help and she said you can feed people you can take somebody a hot meal at the end of their shift and that will just give a, a moment of, of solace or just a bit of energy or something uh, or just like a sign that somebody cares and is sort of notices what what they're doing so that was sort of the first I would say the first kind of 
push. The second thing was going back to the real junk food project experience and the fact that I was really just really conscious of food waste. We knew we were going to close and we had fridges and freezers full of food. And then I just thought, oh God, there's like places all over the country, I mean, obviously all over the world, but that are just having to close at very short notice. And so much of that produce can't be given to food banks. It can't be donated. It's fresh. It needs using. It needs cooking. And so I just sort of put a shout out on social media and said, if anybody's closing down and doesn't know what to do with their produce or has nowhere to put it, then let me know and I'll come and collect it or you can drop it at the creameries. And the response was enormous. I mean, I ended up with a restaurant absolutely full to the rafters with food. And then I was like, okay, shit, Uh, (laughs) what do I do now? So I started phoning um, people I know that work in the NHS. And so I've got like a nurse friend and some doctor friends. And I was just like, would your colleagues or do you know of a ward that's going to be particularly hard hit by dealing with COVID patients? And would they like some food? So that all started within at the first the first weekend of lockdown. A couple of days later, um, I'm pitching of a charity called Back on Track. And one of the uh, groups of people that they um, they work with are people who've formerly been uh, homeless. Um, they also work with former addicts and people who spent time in prison and, and various other people. But so they were they were asked by the Greater Manchester Combined Authority to help with the catering solution because a lot of their work is in catering. The council was trying to take over hotels where rough sleepers could stay and isolate safely and not sort of be on the street and having to mix with the people. So they overnight had thousands of people in hotels and no food provision. So back a couple of days after we started doing the NHS deliveries, back on track, got in touch and said, can you get 70 meals to a hotel in Gorton this evening? And the answer was yes, because I had loads of food and also... Lots of people who were then saying, I've got food, but I've also got a kitchen and I've got time to cook. Um, So that was the start of it, but it just mushroomed. It just absolutely exploded. And so the first shout out was, have you got any food? The second was, have you got any time to cook and somewhere to cook it? And, you know, the, the, the response was, again, just really overwhelming. Trying to field Instagram, Twitter and Facebook messages and phone calls and text messages and emails. I was just like, we really need to get organised because um, because my brain's melting. So we then just set up like a Google form that we directed people to where we asked if they had food, transport, if they could cook or if they could deliver. And, and that's how it started. And I think, I mean, it's all a bit of a blur. I guess that was the end of March. By the middle of April, we were doing like a thousand meals a week. So we ended up taking food to NHS staff uh, rough sleepers in hotels, women in refuges, we, and then parents of children staying in hospital. So it was a bit scattergun. People I knew, or people, and then people started trying to give us money, and then we kind of panicked a bit and thought, well, we need to formalise. So I think we would become a CIC by early May, and we formed a board. And then we did a fundraiser in early June, raised like £100,000. And then <laughs> at United Restream uh, hosted this fundraiser for us. Everyone had a, a lot of free time. Everyone apart from me and Gemma, who were just driving around with car full of veg and meals all the time. But <laughs> we, yeah, it did just the, the willingness to participate. And really, like everyone. And this is, this, it was, it's definitely true of people in hospitality that... People are generally don't really like sitting around and also just want to like cook for people, give people food, 
take care of people that's a big part of it it is definitely quite a lot of it is definitely mm. showing off as well and like look what look what nice food i can do yeah. and look how pretty i can make it that's that's there's definitely an element <laughs> of that but also just sort of people having a nice time because of something you've done is a really great feeling and when we first started this it was all stuff from restaurants so there was like you know, pork belly, salsa fee, truffles, all that kind of thing. So a lot of the meals we were sending to the hotels were just not getting eaten. They were just like, I don't know what this is, and I'm not going near it. <laughs> so we very quickly realised that we just needed to do that was like... That pig's head you deep yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, the, um We sort of realised that it just needed to be stuff that's like real crowd pleasers. And we still had really nice ingredients to use. We wanted it to be nutritious and like really delicious food, and it's made by chefs, so it should taste nice and look nice. But actually just be something that you would fancy to eat. Middle of the yeah. road, yeah. yeah. <laughs> but I mean, how many people do you fed now? I mean, last count, when I saw it, it's 25,000. It's it just over 31,000. In fact, we, had, we wow. had a board meeting yesterday. We'd not had a board meeting for a number of months. So it was really nice to be able to go back and say, we've got this far. Marketplace is doing this. We've got these plans for the future. It felt really positive, actually. It was, um, I mean, 31,000 meals is is a lot it's not millions and there are definitely there are organizations in the city who do an amazing job of making sure that people have food in their bellies we don't do that we're a collective of chefs and hospitality businesses and what we do is we work with organizations who know where vulnerable people are and we don't try and replicate their work and this is an extra on top this is supposed to be a treat a nice thing you know that's that's about sort of dignity and choice we can't make huge volumes of food but we can make a bit of nice food I think I saw it on Granada, there was yeah. a, a piece and it said that you're sharing love through food and it's a moment, it's a kind gesture, isn't it? It's a, a luxury, which is absolutely wonderful. I just couldn't believe how much generosity there was from an, an industry where who were on the knees, who you know were hyperventilating with fear in a way because businesses are falling around their ears, but everybody just galvanised and, and got on and did whatever they could. Totally, and the f- sort of feedback I've had from people that were involved in it was just that you know being being given a way to to do something they were just so glad of it you know I think we can't help but cook things and give it to people we're we're feeders we've set up a way that people could do that we continue to do that I mean we take the ingredients to chefs we sort of deliver the ingredients and the containers and the labels they need they make the meals we pick it up but obviously, because I'm in the hospitality industry, I sort of have a, a good understanding of what the demands are. And, and as restaurants reopened a little bit last August and through into the autumn, it was definitely harder for people to able to be able to contribute. So, you know, we were saying to people, if you can do 10 meals once every two weeks, that's great. We'll take that. We'll put it in the freezer. We'll take it to where it needs to go. But this is why we're now at the stage where we we think we want to look for a, a home of our own and a kitchen of our own. So we can bring people in to volunteer rather than having to do it in their own kitchens. And what are the plans now with obviously the industry opening up, which is fantastic news for everybody? What's what's the place as Eat Well Manchester got now, would you say? Well, we need to adapt to that. So, you know, we need to make sure it's still as easy as possible for people to participate in cooking the meals for the support work that we do. Um, so that's just about working with chefs and restaurants and making sure that they can stay involved because they want to for sure like they all talk about how much they get out of this and and we get this from the the the, the whole of the collective and even from people who shop on the marketplace actually it seems to have grown into something that people just want to be part of which is amazing and 
Um, we just need to keep that going and we need to make sure it's possible. Would you say now that there's been a shift in the way that people view their consumption of food and, and drink over the past 12 months? Yeah, I would say there's been a huge shift, partly through having the time, shopping in a different way, ordering in boxes from sort of local veg suppliers and that kind of thing, really thinking about, I guess, the, where they're buying food from. That's been a big thing I've noticed. The other massive shift is I think people are used to eating restaurant food at home and doing a bit of finishing off cooking themselves. That's, you know, we've been doing, we've been doing the deliveries and it's really popular. And I think people found it a bit of a weird concept at first, but everyone's used to it now. So that's quite good. And it's going to take a long time before people are able to go out and get babysitters even. And, you know, really, even with restaurants open, it's not necessarily going to be easy to visit a restaurant. I'm expecting to see lots of um, parents drinking at lunchtime because uh, <laughs> the kids are back at school. Doing that. Well, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean in the restaurant <laughs> rather than at home. <laughs> oh, just just lunchtime. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> we don't open till twelve. Um, so I think I'm expecting lots of boozy lunches in the re- in the restaurant, which I absolutely, <laughs> absolutely wholeheartedly endorse. Of course, they're I'm the best gonna... ones, aren't they? Yeah, I they mean, are. I just can't wait for those. Yeah, <laughs> so they all definitely are. Stuff now. Yeah. It's all about the lunch. <laughs> yeah, totally. <laughs> so. I think yeah there's been and I think there's there's a definitely a greater consciousness of where food comes from and I think appreciation of of community a little bit as well and how your choices impact on your local area and what you can do to support the local grocers and that's something I hear people talking about a lot more really seen that there's a butcher's in sale where I live called Taylor's and it's been there for years and honestly it's always popular and people will queue outside but at Christmas and bizarrely Valentine's Day there was a three times queue around the car park. Yeah. There must have been 300 people in that queue. Yeah. For t- and I just thought, you know, it's just amazing to see that now. No, it's really good. More so than ever. Okay, so time for a few quick fire questions now. So you said you like to shop locally. Do you have a local shop you really love? I really, really love Unicorn. Oh, I should totally say Eat Well Manchester Marketplace (laughs) because that's my job, Uh, which is amazing and everyone should shop there. But I think in terms of shop that I use a lot and just very, very much enjoy using, I would say Unicorn. What was your favourite Manchester school dinner? Oh, it was um, ravioli and (laughs) chips. Um, so it was tinned like Heinz ravioli with on chips and then the pudding was called buffalo sponge oh I gotta remember that but I didn't know that was the name what would you order at the chippy oh so fish chips mushy peas curry sauce and gravy and I would go to chips at number eight in Presswich because I'm celiac and they do the most amazing gluten-free fish and chips and the the fish like I'm I'm salivating talking about this the fish is so fresh and beautiful and like the potatoes are really good quality and they fry the potatoes in beef dripping it's just it's a dream (laughs) sounds amazing oh yeah nobody said gravy and curry sauce before so you're the first one to say that that sounds fab tough question which restaurant in greater manchester are you going to go to first it's actually quite an easy answer because it's a place where i love it my children love it my auntie loves it my mates love it and it's where i always meet out of town people for drinks so it's hawksmoor like the bar at hawksmoor i've just spent so many really happy evenings there (laughs) and it's also somewhere where i tend to take people on first dates if i'm not sure whether or not i like them it's also quite dark so you can't see them yeah exactly exactly but like my son my son who is now an absolute baller i mean he's 12 and his favorite restaurant is hawksmoor i've totally spoiled him um 
I had to make him steak and chips for his birthday tea last year because all the restaurants were closed. Couldn't he couldn't have his usual hot yeah. tea? So it's interesting. So we had Corinne Bell on the first series, and that's her favourite place. That's where she wanted to go after the last lockdown. Yeah, I don't know if she did. And then I've got to ask this question a bit cheesy, but what special ingredients make up a mank? I think. I would call it creativity, but it, I don't necessarily mean that in like an artistic way. It's being quick thinking or being funny or maybe having a bit of a sideways sort of look at things, like seeing things in a new way. So that there's just, I think there's like an, an adaptability and an energy to the city that you can see in all sorts of areas. As we were saying earlier, it's really in the last 10, 15 years, it's come into being in food and drink, but it's there in so in so many areas i think that's a real kind of strong characteristic of yeah special of, plan of definitely city and therefore must be of the people that live here just lastly i mean you've done so much in your career so much stuff that we've not even covered all of it today and it's gone from having your own restaurant and changing beds at Sharrow bay and working with heston blumenthal and then obviously all the charitable stuff that you've done in the last 12 months but is there something for you that really stands out that you're most proud of so far yeah it's gonna to have to be the two Manchester International Festival things that I did because it just felt like creatively like such a brilliant thing and it was so exciting just to be part of the festival and it was just hugely hugely joyful eat well is obviously also hugely joyful and I think that it has to be that really because it's it came about because of sort of existing relationships within you know that I had with other people in hospitality but it's really really strengthened them and I just hope that you know we can keep that going keep building on that community for as long as possible. Mm. I really can see that. And I think out of every sector that the city's had, hospitality, you must have made so many new friends and connections totally. and relationships that are going to take you for the next 10 years. And it's just been amazing to see and be part of even on the periphery. So thanks so much for joining me on We Built the City, Mary Ellen. Thank you. Um, thanks for having me. I wanted you on the first series, but you were way too busy with Eat Well Manchester and I didn't want to put anything else on. I could see what you're doing. You're all over the media. So well done for everything you've done. I hope the next six months are great and the, the opening up works well for your creameries. And I just can't wait to get over there with Chris Brindley and uh, do some lunchtime drinking actually yes (laughs) it's really nice to talk to you thank you Mary Ellen helped to build this city by being the first woman in the kitchen at the Sharrow Bay Hotel by finally finding her love for vegetables and by not being furious like horse but working like a mother We Built This City is out every Thursday when you'll hear from another incredible Greater Mancunian. If you want to find more out about Roland Johnson PR and you'd like some help in creating your legacy, please head to rdpr.co.uk for more information or give us a call on the same number we've had for 24 years, 0161 236 1122. Thank you and see you next time.